Father, it's a joy for us to gather together as men and women who focus our faith in the Word of God and in the God of the Word. And I pray, Father, that your Word will become our strength, our life, our guide, not only this morning, but each day of our lives. I ask, Lord, that you will open our eyes to truth, that we'll be able to see beyond the physical things that are described to the spiritual truths behind them and, and to the spiritual realm, which is true reality. Help us, Father, to be reminded every day that we are in a spiritual war and that the enemy is out to destroy us each and every day. And, Father, that we must be totally dependent upon you and plugged into the power of your Spirit in order to live a life that brings honor to your name. And that's our desire. We're here, Father, because we want to bow before the sovereign God and exalt your name. And we ask that you will be present here with us this morning in a way that we will sense uh, in our spirits. Lord, throughout our Sunday school this morning, in the service which is concurrently occurring, that you will be present as the word is, is set forth in in the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the process of uh, moving through the life of Moses, and we are currently, that is, we began last Sunday, looking at, uh, just briefly, uh, surveying through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is not a historical book. Uh, Leviticus is, is a book of instructions, a book of laws, a book of sacrifices, and, uh, but there are some really interesting uh, and important teachings uh, scattered through the book. And for, of course, the ancient Hebrews, the whole book was of absolute vital importance because it gave them specific details as to how they were to worship and how they were to sacrifice and, and what their attitude ought to be. We have, we have looked through the first few, oh, about a third of the book, briefly, and last week, we ended at the point where I made a couple of comments about the 11th chapter. The 11th chapter of Leviticus is, is kind of a strange chapter uh, to many of us because it deals with animals uh, and insects and the rest which are clean or unclean. That is, can be eaten or can't be eaten. And personally, I believe that the law of the clean, unclean animals were, was primarily given for the purpose of maintaining health amongst the people. And we know that later on, when Peter was on the roof at Joppa, he was shown all these animals, clean and unclean, mixed together in a vision, and he was told to kill and eat, and of course we know his response to that. And uh, that, of course, illustrated the spiritual aspect of this whole thing. But as you go down through the list of these animals, uh, most of us would say, I wouldn't eat that anyway. <laughs> I wouldn't eat that anyway. You know? I wouldn't, in fact, many of the clean animals we probably don't even uh, eat. But uh, I, that, of course, is not imposed uh, upon us today. But I think there is a measure of wisdom in it. Those things were forbidden for, for reasons, I think, that were partly health, at least. And so even today, uh, we'd probably be wise at least to be familiar with the list and uh, to be careful. The next few chapters, 12, 13, 14, and so forth, deal with health issues, primarily one disease. One disease tends to be the focus of, of several chapters here, and that is the disease of leprosy. Leprosy was a scourge. 
in the ancient Near Eastern world. Leprosy is a disease that most of us are unfamiliar with. Probably most of us have never seen a leper, except maybe in a photograph. And if you have, and if you've seen a person with leprosy in any kind of an advanced state of leprosy, it's kind of revolting because of the condition in which they, they get physically. But uh, leprosy was a virulent disease. Leprosy was a very contagious disease. In fact, that's why they were ordered to set people apart. Lepers were to be put outside the camp, and they were to dwell in a separate community. They were not to be considered as if they weren't human, but they were not allowed to make contact with the general population because the disease goes through periods of time when, when it, it really takes hold of you and, and becomes extra virulent, and at that point it's very, very contagious. And as a result, uh, the people were to be set apart. Now today, if you study this, you discover, of course, leprosy is usually not called leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease because a little over 100 years ago, a Norwegian doctor was the first to isolate the uh, bacteria which produces leprosy. But, uh, and that sounds a lot better, you know, Hansen's disease sounds more acceptable than leprosy, you know, because we have all of these bad thoughts about leprosy, which are really not terribly misplaced, because people with the tubercular form of uh, leprosy, uh, I mean, have all these, what do you call them, tumors on their face, on their body, and generally what happens, of course, when leprosy gets into its uh, serious stages, why the, um, the nerve endings die. And so you don't have any sense of heat and, and pressure and so forth. And so when, when people end up with no fingers and no toes and nose is gone, and lo largely that's the product of injuries that have happened along the way because they didn't know they had their hand in the fire, you know, or they didn't know they cut their finger off or whatever it was because there's no sensation there. But the degeneration of the connective tissues causes, of course, a, a twisting and a warping anyway in and of itself. So these laws were very stringent relative to leprosy, and uh, it goes through explaining how leprosy begins and how that the disease can actually be in physical things around you, and it can, you can get it from contact with walls and blankets and, and so forth. And so there's a, a, a lot here about that, and it was very, very important for Israel to follow these laws to try to contain that disease because there was no cure for that disease in those days as there is today. And the only cure was divine intervention. And, and that was, of course, a very good possibility. And the scripture talks about that, even though there is the chance of natural remission. But generally, that's not true. And usually the person who gets it within five to ten years, he's dead. And like other diseases which cause a degeneration in the body first, often they died of something else that came onto their weakened body and, um, and killed them. So, as I noted, uh, two, three chapters here are given simply to that particular disease known as leprosy. The 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus is the central chapter of the whole book. The book of Leviticus could be said to revolve around the 16th chapter of Leviticus because here we find instructions concerning that great high holy day known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the 10th of Tishri, which was a month which more or less straddles uh, the latter part of September, the first part of October, in our current calendar, the high priest was commanded to go in that one and only time that anyone was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest was commanded to go into the Holy of Holies 
of the tabernacle and make sin offering. No other time, no other time, and no other person was the Holy of Holies to be entered. Yom Kippur was a day in which the high priest would go in before the Ark of the Covenant. He would go through the second veil. The first veil, which was the entrance to the tabernacle into the holy place, and then through the second veil into the Holy of Holies, he would go. And he would go with a fire pan with coals from the altar upon which he would put incense, and that incense was to cloud the room up. And then he was to make the blood offering. He was to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So he would come in. Now remember, the tabernacle room called the Holy of Holies is a very, very small room. It's only 15 feet wide by 15 feet deep. And in the midst of this was the Ark of the Covenant, which was just a small chest, so big. It wasn't a large thing at all. And so he would go in before this particular piece of furniture, which was the dedicated Ark of the Covenant, and with the smoke of the incense filling the room, he would then, as the scripture tells us, put the blood of a bull on the mercy seat for himself and for his family. And when he had completed that, he was then to sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat on behalf of all of Israel. Let's look at chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the ark, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, lest he die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. The last phrase is interesting. With the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. God dwelt amongst Israel, although Israel was not worthy, and Israel was a sinful people, just as the Spirit of the living God dwells in us, although we still are people subject to sin and to failing. The east side, we're told. Well, which direction did the tabernacle face? East. It faced the rising sun. The tabernacle faced east. The entrance to it faced east. The veil to the Holy of Holies faced east. The Ark of the Covenant faced east. So that means he simply walked through the veil, faced straight on to the, to the Ark of the Covenant, and sprinkled the blood on it. That was the east side of the Ark and of the mercy seat. Now connected with this, and very important concept for the Israelites to understand, is the visual aid of the scapegoat. If you read it, verse 20 of chapter 16. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, 
he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This is an object lesson. God is great on visual aids and object lessons. The scripture is full of them. Symbolism begins in Genesis and goes through Revelation. Symbolism of realities. And the scapegoat is no less important. We, of course, know how important the word is, because, uh, the concept is, because the concept of the scapegoat still exists today. Now, we talk about somebody who, uh, because uh, this particular governmental agency is in trouble, somebody's got to be the scapegoat, you know. You've got to blame someone for the trouble. And uh, so that person is cashiered. Well, in this particular case, the object lesson was to help Israel to understand that when atonement was made, their sins were removed forever from them. David would later be inspired to write in the Psalms that verse that we know so well from the 103rd Psalm, that is, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And it's such an important concept for us to, to bear in mind and for Israel to bear in mind. Because our own human nature and the enemy will browbeat us with our sins. You know, we'll, we'll just feel like crawling in a shell someplace and hiding forever because we cannot seem to be freed, you know, just totally freed and, and never sin again. We were listening uh, in, in the morning while we're trying to get ready. Uh, we listened to uh, as much as we can of Erwin Lutzer uh, preaching from Moody Church. And uh, he was talking about cleansing the temple, and cleansing the temple of your spirit. And he, he was saying, you, you can't cleanse your temple once and for all. You've got to cleanse it today, and you've got to cleanse it tomorrow. And, and he was talking about the fact that before he preached this sermon this morning, he said he had to cleanse his spirit last night when he was studying. He had to cleanse his spirit this morning when he came to church, and he had cleansed his spirit again before he got up to preach. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't clean it, but he, let the, he called upon the Spirit of God to cleanse him. Because our human nature is in contradistinction to the Holy Spirit. Our, we have a fallen human nature. It wants to do wrong. It wants to do that which is self-willed. And, and yielding to the Holy Spirit is a constant commitment we have to make consciously. It doesn't just happen by accident. We have to think, God, I commit myself to you again this hour. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people who are in God's service would be more effective if they were constantly aware of the fact that before you give a word of witness, before you preach a message, before you write a letter, whatever it is, we need to call upon God for cleansing because it seems that sin is so easily upon us. But in terms of, of the eternal consequences of those sins, those sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west and buried in the depths of the sea. And so the scapegoat was taken out in the wilderness and released and Israel would see this and know God is considering their sins as gone, out in the wilderness, forever removed. But that needed to happen, how often? Every year. Now, did they only uh, offer for sin on the Day of Atonement? No, 
there was a morning offering and an evening offering made by the, by the priests every single day of the year. And then the numerous other offerings were made at other times, as we'll just briefly review them in a few minutes here. And, and, and all of this was done to keep before Israel the constant reminder that they were a sinful people who needed to do business with God on a daily basis. Now, absolutely everything God had done and said relative to this book of Leviticus tends to focus on the crucial teaching concerning atonement, which we find at the end of this chapter, beginning verse 29. And this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. <laughs> I mean, you know, you need to highlight that little phrase there. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. I mean, that's the high court of the universe. If we're clean of all of our sins before the Lord, we're clean. <laughs> it is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Whatever criticism we may have of the man Moses, whatever mistakes this man made, there are very few people in Scripture about whom it is said so often, just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. I mean, it is repeated over and over and over again. The key factors that made atonement sacrifice effective for the people not only included absolute obedience to the method. This is what you must do. The high priest must go in through the veil once a year, burn the incense, sprinkle the blood of the bull, sprinkle the blood of the goat. That's the method, and that was extremely important. But God is not served by method only, which is one of the things that distinguishes true Christianity from most all other religions and even aberrant varieties of Christianity, where the method is everything. The institution is everything. But here we discover throughout Scripture that heart attitude is so much more important. You could go through the method, go through the routine until you drop dead. It would do absolutely no good if there was not faith and repentance and humility. God respects the humble heart. God rejects the arrogant. Period. So those who go before God with the sense that, God, you've got to cleanse me because I'm such a good guy, forget it. Now, in spite of all of this, did the blood, that physical blood of the bull and the physical blood of that goat, atone for their sins alone? Well, we know, no, that couldn't possibly happen. Because we've already read in another context 
the passage in Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So why bother? What is this all about? It's all about symbolism, as I emphasized a few moments ago. It's about symbolism. This act on Yom Kippur was symbolic. It was symbolic of the true atonement that would occur one day. And, in, and, and we always have to remember, in, in God's eternal economy had already happened because God is not held by time and history, but by the blood of the one whom John the Baptist referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ's blood alone was sufficient for atonement. His blood alone was sufficient to take away sin for all time and in all places. So what they were doing there was looking forward to that event. It was the symbol of it. Just in some ways as we take communion today, symbolizing what Christ did for us in the past, so this was done symbolizing what Christ would do in the future. The difference, of course, was Israel didn't know about Christ yet. But they were acting in faith according to the dictates of God. And whether they understood that Christ would one day die or not, it was the act of obedient faith that proved the reality of their cleansing. They acted in obedience. They acted in faith. They acted in humility. They acted in repentance. Just as the blood of the bull and the goat was not effective, if they didn't have faith, if they didn't have repentance, if they were not humble, so Christ's blood does not bring salvation does not bring atonement today to those who do not believe and who do not humbly repent of their sins. The doctrine of universal atonement, which means that Christ died for everybody and everybody's going to go to heaven, including Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and all the rest, is wishful thinking on the part of liberal theologians who simply cannot believe that their definition of a loving God couldn't possibly hold people responsible for their sins or require them to believe some narrow view about who God is just because God happened to proclaim it to be that way. The passage in Scripture which, uh, whereby Jesus is declared as the way, the truth, and the life and then the sermon by uh, Peter in which he said, there is no other name given, under heaven, uh, given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Um, these, these passages of Scripture are very much played down by the liberals, are ignored by them entirely, because to them, you know, you've you got to be able to get there by any way, because otherwise too many people are going to go to hell. They don't think much of the passage about the broad way and the narrow way, the broad gate and the narrow gate. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember, we read about, talked about the prophecy concerning Messiah. In Exodus, we saw the foreshadowing of redemption through Messiah in the institution of that great event called Passover. In Leviticus now, we read of this sacrificial system which was established through the Levites and, and the tabernacle worship, which symbolized atonement which would one day be, be provided by the death of Messiah. Messiah in Genesis, Messiah in Exodus, Messiah in Leviticus, Messiah throughout the Old Testament. You and I have been redeemed by the one whose heel 
was bruised by the serpent, by the one whose blood was spread on the doorposts of our hearts as our Passover lamb, and whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the tabernacle as atonement for our sins. We have been redeemed once and for all. All of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. In the eyes of Almighty God, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The key to that phrase is, in Christ Jesus. We're not in Christ Jesus simply because we go to church, obviously. We're not in Christ Jesus because we belong to a particular institution. We're not in Christ Jesus because we go through a particular form or do something by a particular method. We're in Christ Jesus by faith. Faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. Faith which, is, which produces repentance of sin and humility of life. Almost all sins we commit are the product of arrogance, of pride. The pride that causes us to feel that we can go ahead and do that and somehow God will tolerate it. But we have to fall on our faces in repentance, acknowledging God does not tolerate any sin whatsoever. And we're responsible for repentance before Him. In the New Testament, we are so familiar, I think, with the first chapter of First uh, John first epistle of John, the first chapter. Let me just read uh, verses 5 through 10 in light of all of this, because this really applies it to us. 1 John 1, 5, And this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Thus the atonement is applicable. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There are many different denominations of the so-called Christian church which make certain statements or have certain uh, doctrines which are denied by this very passage. And all I can say is that the scripture is not of any private interpretation. The scripture is of one interpretation and that is the interpretation given by the Holy Spirit, not by mine or yours or somebody else's in the flesh. And that's how these, all these denominational differences come up. Somebody in the flesh has come up with an interpretation because they have a particular persuasion and they want the Scripture to support it. And so they take the Scripture and kind of bend it around a little bit in order to support their particular persuasion. And there are denominations, as you know, who will teach you that after you're saved you cannot sin. Well, I'm sorry, but... The scripture is very clear about that. There are, there are denominations that say all kinds of strange things. As, as you go through scripture, I think it's really important that you ask God to open your eyes to the truth and read it with a mind guided by the light of the Spirit and not by some twisted person that's, uh, uh, you know, book whose book we might have run across sometime or another. 
And I, you know, you probably have done as I have. You, you, you talk with the people from the Watchtower Society and you start talking with them about a specific scripture. And they have to pull out their little book. Not their New World Translation, but the other little book. <laughs> and, and they have to search through to find that passage and see what the Watchtower Society says about that passage. Because you see, they cannot interpret it for themselves. Because if they do, they might get it right. And, and, and then they'd be in trouble. It used to be that when they came to the door, you could talk to them about you know, passages in the first chapter of Revelation and in the first part of Hebrews, and they'd sit there and look at you, and they wouldn't know what to say. You know, but they've learned now to get their little book out and search through, <laughs> and let's see what it says about you know, the first chapter of Revelation here. Where, you know, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. The importance, I think, of this can't be missed, and that is that you and I are sinners. We are sinners saved by grace, but we have not stopped being sinners. And just as Israel needed every day for offerings to be offered, and every year Yom Kippur came around again, God never said, oh, you guys were so good this year, let's just forget Yom Kippur this year. No, God never said that. Because we are never so good <laughs> as to say, well, God doesn't need to cleanse me today because I've really been a good boy for the last 24 hours. You know, well, if that's what we believe, we've really been blinded. Because, I don't know about you, maybe you're, more, you're better at it than I am, but thoughts come to my mind which I know God hasn't put there, and desires suddenly well up, and I know they aren't from God. And, you know, you have to keep pushing that stuff aside and asking for God's cleansing. As you have heard, and, and, and Billy Graham even preaches that, the temptation is not the sin, it's the yielding or the dwelling on the temptation that becomes the sin. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that when the temptation comes, we tend to dwell on things and to yield all too often. As we move on in the book of Leviticus, chapters 18 and 19 deal with ethical and moral laws that Israel was to keep. Because to the doctrine of service to the living God of commitment to the living God, there was a lifestyle to be practiced. That lifestyle did not come automatically. If, if I just say I'm a Christian and then just coast, I'm going to coast in the wrong direction because my natural tendency is to do wrong. And you have to swim upstream in order to go the direction God wants. You can't just float because that will be downstream. And God gave to Israel these ethical and moral laws to show them the direction in which they were to swim and how to swim. And they were to keep these laws as an expression of their love of God and their obedience to God, even if they didn't agree with the law. Even if they thought, God, why do I have to do it this way? I mean, my natural flesh is to do this, and it seems okay. Why are you tell me I got to do that instead? Now, there are a lot of questions we can raise about what God expects of his people. And we can say, but it just, you know, it, it's not logical, Lord. I mean, it isn't all that bad, is it? <laughs> well, God, being the one who put us together, knows far better. And so as an expression of their love and obedience, and as a demonstration to the world of God's character and kingdom living, they were to walk in obedience to God's word. Because if you walk in obedience to God's word, you are a strange duck in this world. The world looks on you as if, woo, you have been bitten by the weird bug. 
And especially today, and I'll you'll go back 100 years in U.S. history, and it wasn't quite so strange because most people at least knew that there was a book called the Bible and, and uh, that there was God and Jesus Christ and so forth. But today, of course, if you talk in those narrow terms, they think you're some kind of a narrow-minded bigot who comes from the back hills, pardon me if anybody comes from there, of Tennessee or someplace. <laughs> Maybe I should say the back hills of California. <laughs> know, that's probably no better. More likely to have somebody from there. <laughs> But uh, that's a stereotype, obviously. In the 19th chapter, the second verse, we understand why God gave all of these moral and ethical laws. He said, Speak to all the congregations of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Period. What other explanation do we need? If we're going to be God's children... We must be as God is. And he doesn't need to explain to us why. We can't do this and we should do that and why this is wrong and why that's right. We don't need all those explanations. He says, this is what I expect you to do. Do it. Now, it's, it's very interesting. Just this past week, I was um, teaching a class in the college on the uh, French dynasty, uh, known as the Bourbon, Bourbon dynasty, if you like, of kings that lived in the 17th and 18th century in France, one of the most decadent times in all of French history. And one of the kings certainly you've all heard of, his name is Louis XIV, title was Louis XIV. And uh, one, of, one of the foolish things he did was, oh, about two-thirds of the way through his reign, he revoked an edict which had been put into operation about 80 years before, which granted religious toleration in France. He revoked that edict. He said, there's not going to be religious toleration in France. And the reason he revoked it was, he said, well, he was known as the Sun King, you know, the S-U-N King, meaning that uh, he felt that he was to all of France as the sun is to all the earth, you know. As the sun gives life to the earth, so he gives life to France. He, he was a very um, humble person who <laughs> talked about the fact that, you know, in effect he said, I am France. <laughs> and the reason he revoked the edict was, he said, I am a committed Roman Catholic. All Frenchmen would want to be what I am because of who I am. Therefore, there shouldn't be any need for a law for religious toleration because no good Frenchman would want to be anything but a committed Roman Catholic. Now, that's a distortion uh, of, of course, a truth. But God looks upon us and he says, I am holy. You're to be holy too. And that's not an expectation that is uh, too great for us or distorted. Uh, that's only natural. If we're going to be called the sons and daughters of the living God, we're supposed to be like the living God. Now, it's a process, of course, and it's never complete in this lifetime, but it becomes an attitude. And that's where the importance is, is in the attitude. If our attitude is to be like him, then the rest of the things fall into place. And we understand why we should do this, understand why we shouldn't do that, because this is reflecting the character of God. But if we don't have that, that, that attitude of being like God to begin with, then we're bucking against it all the time. Life is such a drag, because I can't do this and I can't do that. And people talk about the no's and the don'ts and the negative commandments of, of, of the Bible and don't talk about the positive thing, and the book is full of positive stuff. But this book talks more about positive than negative by far. It's all in the attitude. It's all in the attitude that we come with. The world was to witness 
the reality of God by seeing his character reflected in the lives of his people. How else are people going to see God? Unless they see him in us. Unless we kind of polish up this image and reflect Christ, how's the world going to know he's here? The question is, is this truth given in Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Is that still applicable to us today? Is that something that still, was that only for Israel or is that for us too? Well, I mean, you all know the answer to that, but let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. There is no spiritual truth in the Old Testament that does not apply in the New Testament and in our lives today. No eternal truth. There may be some methods and some things that happen that we don't adhere to today. But if it's an eternal spiritual truth, it's an eternal spiritual truth. And if it's eternal, it's just as a, uh, it applies as much today as it ever applied. And so we are to be holy as God is holy, as Israel was to be holy, because Yahweh was holy. Now, as you go on in Leviticus chapters 21 and 22, what you find here are rules concerning the priests and sacrifices which are to be made. And as you read through that, you might find part of it disturbing, because God says things like this, uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout your generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the bread of his God. No one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descents of Aaron the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offering by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most, the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect that he may not profane my sanctuary, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Why would God say that? Does God not love those with defects? I mean, most of us wouldn't want to be closely inspected because most of us have a defect someplace or another. You know, It's, it's obvious in some cases and maybe not so obvious until we open our mouths in other cases. <laughs> but we, we are that, and we might say, what does God have against a hunchback? What does God have against a dwarf? I mean, they didn't make themselves that way. God has nothing against any of them. God loves them equally. God loved a dwarf who had a hunchback and eczema and all the rest of stuff all in one as much as he loved the perfect high priest. So what's this here for? Again, it's always symbolic. It's always symbolic. 
The importance is not the physical condition of somebody's body. The importance is the symbolism here. God will receive the best. God is perfect. And therefore, we must do as close to perfection in terms of offerings to Him as it's possible for us to do. And, and, and so, the point of it is, if somebody who is all crippled up and full of defects does all of this, the whole worship of God is diminished in the eyes of people. That's not right, but that's reality. That's reality. Think about it for a minute. How much has the name of Christ been defamed by high-profile preachers who have taken on a glaring defect of sin, gross immorality or whatever it was. I mean, the scripture goes on in, in, to also say that no priest shall offer who, who's an immoral person, no priest shall offer who's married to a harlot. I mean, any of these kinds of things are, are not to be there. It is because of what it means to the people, of how it impacts them and how they respond. It's not that God expects us to be what we can't be. None of us can be perfect. But when the sacrifice was brought, when the lamb is brought, can you just bring any old lamb from the herd? You know, the lamb with one short leg and one cocked ear and a black eye and whatever else. You, you can't bring that lamb. You could only bring a lamb that was carefully inspected that it is as perfect as a lamb can be. Why? Because of the symbolism of it. God of the universe is not going to just receive any old thing you feel like casting his way because he ought to be happy that he got anything from us. The attitude is that we must give him our best because he's worthy of far beyond our best. When, when the Holy Spirit called the first missionaries to go to the pagan world, he called Saul and Barnabas. Now, he could have called Hillbilly Joe, some illiterate guy from the backcountry who didn't know, you know the Mediterranean from uh, the Syrian desert. Uh, to be a missionary. But God didn't do that. He called the Apostle Paul, the man who would write half the New Testament, the man who was probably one of the most best educated persons of that time period, a man of brilliant mind. He calls the best. We will serve him with our best. We will do our best. I try to admonish the, the students at college, and, and I say, you all have certain skills but God wants you to do your very best. Do the best you can. And trust God to make up wherever there's a gap. But don't flake out. Because there's no excuse for flaking out. Now, we've all done that. And, and we repent and God cleanses us and we go on from there. But it's the attitude. The attitude has got to be God deserves nothing but our very best. And, and, and that comes through all of this. The best. God wants the best because that's the attitude we've got to come to. Not because God hates dwarves or because God doesn't like harlots. He loves them all. I mean, Jesus brought into his very inner circle a, a saved harlot, Mary Magdalene. I mean, and David made such a big point of rescuing the crippled son of Saul and bringing him into his inner presence and being part of his table. Well, maybe there was guilt involved, but whatever the case is, God loves imperfection. God loves us imperfect people. But he wants us to give our best. He wanted Israel to give the best. And he wanted Israel to have the attitude of giving God the best. And that's really hard today because you and I live in a society which goes for the mundane, you know, lowest common denominator. And that's 
you know, starts out in our public schools and goes from there. And our, our whole society is that way. So it's real easy to get to the point where, mm, if God gets one Sunday a month from me, he's lucky. He should be happy. No. And it's not that going to church or going to Sunday school or doing this or doing that is, is jumping through hoops for God. It all comes back to the attitude. Is he supreme or not? Is he Lord or not? If he's Lord, then it is his desire that we want to accomplish. It is his desire that is our goal. And all these laws, which are so hard for us to read in Leviticus, and, and, and all this bloody stuff you know, that you read about in, in there about the sacrifices, I mean, it all has the ultimate goal of helping us to recognize that we are sinners who need cleansing day by day, moment by moment, and we must in turn strive to give God our best, to give God our best. And, and I think when we fall short of that, we, we are shortchanging ourselves. I mean, God will get along. He always has. But we're shortchanging ourselves. <coughs> we're destroying our own sense of who we are. We are the sons and daughters of the living God, the king of the universe. Why should we live like a bunch of paupers? So everything God does is to uplift his people and make us who he made us to be in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, which was perfect to walk and talk with God day by day in the garden. And we're so far from that. But he wants to restore that. And that's his goal. And I hope that through our study of Scripture that that becomes more and more our own goal. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of our goal because it's easy to lose it. It can be there today and gone tomorrow. As Luther said uh, this morning, you, you, you ask God to clean your tabernacle, but you just can't go on through the next month with a clean tabernacle. <laughs> You've got to clean it out again because somebody walked with muddy feet right across the, door, uh, the floor. Somebody put his dirty hand on the wall. Well, you know who that was. <laughs> and we have a tendency to track up our own tabernacle. So we, we, we need that cleansing. And, and so we need to constantly renew our focus. Renew our focus day by day. Today, I'm here to serve the living God with the best that I have. And, and with the strength that he's given me. And he will take it from there. Well, we'll look at chapter 23. I thought we'd get there, but we'll look at 23. And there, there are some really wonderful things in, in these remaining chapters also. So we'll, we'll pick those up next Sunday.